Seattle Sports Saturdays with Curtis Rogers and Taylor Jacobs. On 710 ESPN Seattle. You've got literally nowhere to be today, so why not spend it with us for the next two hours here on 710 ESPN Seattle. This is Seattle Sports Saturday, maybe the coziest edition of Seattle Sports Saturday so far. He is Taylor Jacobs. I'm Curtis Rogers. Taylor, it's a snow day. So much fun to be had outdoors uh, at a socially distanced uh, space, of course. But we're indoors breaking it down here for the next two hours. And I, I don't know, was was there anything that was said this week that may have sort of set the Seattle sports world on fire? I, I, can't, I can't seem to think of anything. Yeah, Curtis, before the show, I was like, ah, what are we going to even talk about today? There's snow. Do people even, is there anything, there's there's no pressing topics, there's no controversies, there's no star athletes potentially asking for more. Could this lead to more than just that? No, none of that, none of that. None of that. Well, there was that thing that Russell Wilson said about uh, getting tired of being hit so much. Yeah, that that kind of slipped through the cracks this week. Uh, You know, we we talked about it a little bit from time to time here on 710. But, yeah, Russell Wilson making his presence known, his feelings known about where this Seahawks organization stands heading into one of the most critical off-seasons they'll ever have, and an off-season where they're kind of pressed up against it. Not a lot of draft capital, not a lot of cap space to work with, but Russ putting pressure on this front office, holding their feet to the fire, and we're going to get into this in a big way. First up, i got to say, Thank you to Russell Wilson, first off, for giving us this during what is traditionally one of the slowest weeks on the Seattle sports calendar. I can't thank him enough for <laughs> lobbing this softball up to us. This is a topic that sports radio was created for, okay? This is what we have been bred to do in this industry. Shout out to Russ for that. Yeah, quite. This was a reminiscent of a Gary Payton lob and the Sean Kemp oh. thunderous slamma jamma to bring it on down because we get to talk about it all week. And yeah, one of the slower sports weeks uh, may have turned into one of the busier ones here for us. And this this thread may sort of um, weave its way into the entire fabric of this off season. You know, the draft in a couple months. What's that going to look like now? moves beforehand when free agency officially opens up for the NFL. And there's a lot to talk about and to break down. And, and it starts with Russell, just like everything else. And, and uh, unfortunately or fortunately, that's where we will uh, start our conversations this week as well. Yeah, and as we start every Seattle Sports Saturday, we give you our big three. Number one. Well, we mentioned it. We teased it. We laughed at it, but uh, the quiet week we usually come to expect in Seattle got turned upside down when Russell Wilson was honest with Dan Patrick, which was nice to see and opened up a little bit. You rarely see that from Russell Wilson when he talks to big national media pundits. But with that came the uh, the expression of his uh, frustrations, I, I guess is what you would put it, in the offensive line and the lack of protection protection he's had in his career here in Seattle and maybe what the future of the offensive line looks like here in Seattle as well. So 
Russell sort of sparking the fuse. Could this lead to a divorce? Could this lead to a, a big sort of fracture in the front office to Russell Wilson? Should Russell Wilson be allowed to say this? Should he have a say in these types of moves? Was it out of line? Is this team underachieving? So many questions coming up with this one interview uh, with Russell Wilson. So we're going to dive into it the rest of the hour. We're going to talk about some of those big questions. We're going to get you through it, guys. We're going to talk you off the ledge. We're going to bring you back. This happens more than you would think, and we'll talk about that the rest of this 11 o'clock hour. Number two. Big trade in the WNBA this week involving your defending champion Seattle Storm. Their roster shaken up in a big way. Four teams involved in this swap. That included 2019 Defensive Player of the Year Natasha Howard, the 2021 number one overall pick, and a handful of other players. Seattle dealing Howard and Sammy Whitcomb to the New York Liberty. New York sending the number one pick to the Storm, who then flipped it to Dallas for third-year forward Katie Lou Samuelson. Also coming back to Seattle, two second-round picks in 2022 from New York and Dallas, as well as Micaiah Herbert-Harrigan and Stephanie Talbot. Got all that? It's it's a crazy trade. So many moving parts and moving pieces. The Storm are going to look different in this upcoming season. I still think they have enough pieces to defend their WNBA title, but it's going to be a lot tougher to do it without the defensive stalwart Natasha Howard down low in the post. Uh, But I like the youth that Katie Lou Samuelson brings to this Storm team. Should be a fun season in store for the Storm, and I think it sets it up nicely for the post-Sue Bird era, which even though she's back in 2021, you don't know what her future is going to be like beyond this upcoming season. Number three. Well, one of the quietest baseball winters wrapping up here, especially for Jerry DePoto and the Mariners, who love to be active this time of year, but pretty quiet on the Western front and the whole entire league front in that matter, pretty much. Uh, Season for the Mariners reporting for spring training on Wednesday. Pretty stunning to think, but, uh, you know, around Valentine's Day is usually when pitchers and catchers start arriving down there in Arizona and... It looks like it will continue on. There were some some doubts about whether or not it would take place, but it looks like it will continue so far. So we'll, we'll, we'll keep you updated if anything changes there. But a week of more accolades for this Mariners farm system. Baseball America ranked them number two in all of Major League Baseball. Highest ranking for the Mariners in 37 years. Only team ahead of them, well, that would be the reigning AL champion Tampa Bay Rays, who have been uh, nothing but reloading that farm system recently as well. And in other news, our very own Shannon Dreher reporting that they have signed closer Ken Giles, who won't be pitching in 2021, most likely won't be pitching until 2022. Uh, and so he is going to be on the Mariners roster in the next couple of years. And Cactus League schedule released this week. Opener will be Sunday, February 28th against Colorado. And you can hear it right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. That is this hour's big three. Some honorable mentions in college basketball. The Cougs picking up a nice upset win over UCLA. The Bruins near the top of the Pac-12 standings right now. Kyle Smith, you're too. I mean, it feels like there is some foundation going forward. Nerdball uh, is never going to win you, you know, 30 games in a regular season, at least not yet. But uh, I think 
the Cougs right now, certainly, you know, it's easy to say they're in a better place than the Huskies because Washington, <laughs> three and fifteen, they face the Bruins tonight. Uh, Cougs also host USC. You can hear that USC Wazoo game later. I believe it's five o'clock tip off, so that would make it a four thirty pregame, uh, and then. Also, the Cougs, Taylor, in the football department, not a great week for them as starting quarterback Jane Delora and cornerback Aiden Hector both suspended indefinitely for separate reasons. Delora with that uh, DUI uh, he had earlier in the week. Not a good week for the Cougs, but uh, you know, hopefully those situations get figured out here over the next couple of weeks. Um, you just you don't want to see any of those things happen uh, to anybody. So hopefully, uh, hopefully Delora learned a valuable lesson in this because you don't want anybody doing that, especially the quarterback of your team. And then minor league baseball underwent a, a massive realignment yesterday. And Taylor, I don't know how you feel about this, but gone is the Pacific Coast League, which is a staple of West Coast baseball, a staple of minor league baseball. It's where the Mariners AAA affiliate has always been. What, what do you make of of the Pacific Coast League being no more and just looking at some of the, the division names now, they're all kind of confusing. Yeah. And it just, it, it feels awkward and weird and you just feel for some of these small towns who are losing opportunities, who, you know, minor league baseball plays such a big role in some of these small towns and, and it, it, it is their pro team. It is their franchise. It's a, a much a part of the community as our teams are here. And, you know, to, to see it realigned, to see people falling out, to see people coming in, it's just this weird, awkward feeling to have that. You know, some of it's brought on by the pandemic and, and some of it was brought on by baseball themselves. And it's just it's uh, sad, disappointing and and weird, I think, is the only way you can really describe it. Yeah. You know, your heart goes out to a lot of those cities across the country. Uh, I know West Virginia, the West Virginia Power, they were an affiliate of the Mariners in 2019. Their team no longer has minor league affiliation with any ball club, which is which is, you know, brutal because, like you said, that was a lot of these small towns across the country, their connection to Major League Baseball, their, their one chance maybe to see a, a future superstar come through your, your small town. Uh, you know, we're blessed here in Seattle to have baseball kind of all across the Puget Sound and all across the state. You know, you look at uh, not just the Mariners and the Rainiers and the Aqua Sox out west here, but you've also got, you know, on the eastern side of the state, Tri-Cities with the Dust Devils, uh, the Spokane Indians as well. Um, you know, good to see that those two teams are still uh, going to be playing. And also uh, Everett, Tri-Cities, and Spokane, all three of those markets are going to see more games this season. They go from short season A ball to now a full season. I think they go from about 70 or so games to now 120, which more baseball is good for everybody. Um, but, yeah, just so bizarre to no longer see the Pacific Coast League had been in existence for like 100 years or so. Yeah, again, Curtis, you nailed it, right? Like you, you're so excited for some of those cities around here, but that also doesn't take away from you know some of those cities who who fell out and are losing opportunities. Um, so it again, it's um, this was needed for baseball. Obviously, they wouldn't have made this move if they thought it was pointless. They needed to do this to, to make more money, to make it more profitable. So. 
you know, hopefully long term, this leads to more success in the minor leagues and that this sort of reshift, this reorg, if you will, is like when major companies have these reorgs and it just helps push them in the right direction to a, a, a better sort of more profitable future. So that's what we're hoping for. Congrats to the, play, the, the people who are getting more and our heart goes out to the people who are getting less. Coming up in this hour of Seattle Sports Saturday, plenty of reaction to what Russell Wilson had to say, as well as how the Seahawks may respond to it. Is Seattle's way of roster building sustainable? Can they keep going at this the way they have for the better part of John Schneider and Pete Carroll's tenure here and have the Seahawks underachieve? Those conversations coming up in this hour, but up next... Was Russell Wilson out of line in his comments, or did he have a valid point in what he had to say? That's next here on Seattle Sports Saturday. Seattle Sports Saturdays with Curtis Rogers and Taylor Jacobs. On 710 ESPN Seattle. Coming up in this hour is Seattle's way of building their roster sustainable. That's coming up in about 30 minutes from now here on 710 ESPN Seattle. This is Seattle Sports Saturday. And Taylor, I feel like when Russell Wilson dropped that bomb that he did, and I don't even know if it was a bomb, so to say, but it was definitely comments that grabbed everybody's attention and I don't know if the Seahawks can ever go back to being what they were prior to Russ's comments because this is this is something coming from the most important player on your roster and maybe the most important player in franchise history actually I'm not going to say maybe to that he is the most important player in franchise history because once he arrived in 2012 everything took off but there has been a lot of I guess, discussion amongst Seahawks fans, Seahawks media, just everybody that has anything to do with this team this week about what Russ had to say. And there is a a portion of the fan base, I don't know if it's a majority or not, but there is a portion of the fan base that definitely had an issue with what Russell said. And I think the big issue was really the platform and how he said it. Taylor, when you go back to the time you first heard those comments. So it would have been what Tuesday of this last week. What was your initial reaction to that? And has it evolved at all in the days since? Yeah, I think initially I was just, like I said, uh, in the last segment, I was stunned. Russell said that like, what? He never really shows his cards that way. You know what I mean? He doesn't reveal or tip his hand in, and look, We don't know what goes on behind the scene. Could he have been saying this for years to the front office, to Pete, to John? Maybe. And you know what I mean? We'll never really know that. They'll never tell us. And even if Russell were to tell Jake Heaps that, it wouldn't be fully of what's really happening there. Nor should it, because it's really only between the people employed there whose jobs it is, whose their jobs rely on them going out and making these decisions. So I I think I've calmed down a little bit more as the week has gone on. Now I'm not an offensive lineman. If I was Dwayne Brown, I think it might've gone the other way. I think I would have been more upset as the week went along Curtis because um, he's, he's one of the best to, to play the position 
in this decade. So to call him out like that, to call some of the younger players, Damian Lewis, you know, some of these pieces who are new to the league, to call them out, that felt a little bit more, I don't like that. And and as the week grew, that was the only thing I found myself sort of not liking about this situation was the offensive lineman's perspective and what they felt like, you know, having to go out and they got to block for Russell. And look, it's not easy to block for guys who move outside the pocket. Holding calls get called so often on those linemen when they get outside and they start moving and Russell's creates on his own. And when he's freestyling back there, the linemen have to freestyle too. Right. And so the the pressure he also puts on them by doing that, I, I think I just found myself feeling for the offensive lineman more as the week went along. But what about you? What was your first reaction on Tuesday? You're at work, and, and that news comes down on Twitter. Yeah, I, I think my initial reaction to it was kind of like, wow, it took nine years for us to, to finally kind of snap in this way. Honestly, like with how many sacks he has taken, and that's a whole nother conversation that has sprouted from this, is who is at most fault for the number of sacks that Russ has taken? Is it the offensive line? Is it Russ? And I think there I think there are two truths in that. I think Russ does hold on to the ball too long, and I think the offensive line has played a huge role in the number of sacks that Russell Wilson has taken over the course of his career. You know, he's coming up on 400 over nine seasons. That's an absurd number. But yeah, when I first heard these comments, it was just kind of like, yeah, like what Russ has said, none of it was wrong. None of what he said was wrong. But the the method of it, I think is what take has what taken or has taken so many people by surprise. You bring up the offensive line, and I I kind of wonder though, especially with Dwayne Brown, somebody whose whose legacy in the league is pretty cemented. He has been an incredible asset for the Seahawks over his tenure. Um, one of the best moves that Pete and John have ever made is is acquiring him to just stabilize that left side of the offensive line. If I'm him, I and and I know that of the season that I had, and there, he was not an issue from any standpoint in terms of blocking, in terms of giving Russ that protection he needed on that side of the point, or on that side of the line, I should say. I don't know if I am as offended as I would be if I were like Mikey Potty or Ethan Posick the two guys who are maybe not going to be back in 2021 and are the two biggest areas I think of need on that offensive line at left guard and at center. I think Damian Lewis had for a rookie. I think he had a pretty solid season for Brandon shell. I think he did. He did fine. I didn't have any issues with his you know, job on the right side of the line. He was in and out of the lineup at the end of the season, but when he was healthy, he was a a good player, and I think he performed above what the Seahawks paid for him this last season. So I think, to me, if I'm on that offensive line right now and I hear what Russ has to say about it, the only people that I think can that really have any sort of issue with that would be Mike Upati and would be Ethan Posick, two guys who did not perform the best that they could have. Posick had a good start to the season, but his his production tailed off at the end. Taylor, when you look at the offensive line, I I know you 
you just stated that, you know, if you're Dwayne Brown, you kind of like, hey, man, I've got your back and blocking. Why didn't you have mine? But what about the other guys on the offensive line who clearly did not play up to snuff? Yeah, I mean, they're going to have to have a real sort of internal reflection. I mean, the two names you just mentioned there, Curtis, um, Posick and Yapati, I think they're both up. Their contracts are up, or I know Posick's the unrestricted yeah. free agent, right? They both are unrestricted here. So, you know, some of those decisions may take care of themselves. But, yeah, I mean, it's going to take some talking to – look, what happens behind the scenes like we just mentioned? We, we don't know the conversations Russell's had with Damian Lewis. We don't know the calls he's had with Dwayne Brown. And, and when I interviewed Dwayne uh, two seasons ago now in the Hawks Live Gaming he talked about how he and Russell have a really close relationship, and that's one of the reasons why he loved Seattle is because he and Russell did talk so much, and they were a lot of the time on the same page. So, you know, where is he in that? I think having Dwayne being on the same page as Russell, like you mentioned, can go a long way because he might be able to take Damian under his wing and say, hey, look, he's got to say it to get us some more help. That's what he's got to do. He's got to use his power and his little bit of leverage he has to position this way but we got to do our jobs we still got to go out there we still got to block we still got to make sure we're protecting him when the when our, our names are called and that's the bottom line and look they can be better they weren't the top offensive line group in the league so for them their motivation should still be the same and it should still be improving to be one of the top units both in pass and run uh, in national rankings in the, in the NFL. Yeah. I, I think to me, I don't have an issue with what, what Russ said. Like I said, it, it, it took him nine years to get to this point. I think that's actually pretty good considering the amount of punishment he's taken. The method in which he did it though on a national radio show, and then also in his Walter Payton Man of the Year press conference um, where he just kind of reiterated those points that he had made with Dan Patrick. Uh, You know, it it just – I don't know if that was the best route, but it could be the most effective route. And that, I think, is something that Russ is really emphasizing here because, like Dan Patrick said, there's an urgency within – Russell Wilson's camp to get him another title, to get him another Super Bowl, because, you know, it's important to Russ that he plays a Hall of Fame career, that he wins an MVP, because, uh, you know, and wins another Super Bowl, because I think those are important to him at the end of the day, just as I think it's important to Pete Carroll and John Schneider that they win another Super Bowl that shows that this was. Uh, you know, one of the most successful runs in, you know, recent NFL history, obviously the Patriots and what they've done, that's not, you know, that's not a realistic goal for any team in the NFL, but to win a pair of Super Bowls with the same quarterback, with the same head coach, with the same front office for the most part, that's important to a lot of these guys. And I, I wonder if that is going to supersede any hurt feelings that may have, have come from this. Yeah, and look, they Russell Wilson isn't the first athlete to do this, to use his position to get some leverage. Kobe's done it. Rodgers has done it. 
Uh, look, Jordan did it back in the day to sort of get Rodman and make sure that they were adding players back then. We saw it in the last dance. Like, <clears throat> go back, look at some of these big athletes over recent history. And uh, if you don't have that desire to win and be the best and constantly be winning, then you won't be considered one of the best. So you see it when guys like Wayne Gretzky moved teams and, and what he demanded when he went to his new organization to keep winning. Like Those players want to win. It motivates them to every degree. And that's what I think was Russell's motivation here. He just wants to win. I don't think it's personal. I think it's a lot of just business positioning. And it's business. That's what happens when you're you're playing in the league. We'll continue this conversation throughout the early or the late morning here and your early afternoon on Seattle Sports Saturday. But up next, have the Seahawks underachieved since winning Super Bowl Forty Eight? We discuss that next year on Seattle Sports Saturday. Seattle Sports Saturdays with Curtis Rogers and Taylor Jacobs on Seven Ten ESPN Seattle. Text coming in from the 832, that'd be Mikey in Houston. He says, in the discussion of Russell's comments, I never hear him mention that the Hawks are among the lowest teams in the league in offensive line spending. Seems like that's a pretty important factoid. Well, Mikey, we're going to be talking about that exact thing coming up at 1145 this morning here on Seattle Sports Saturday. But, Taylor, you look over the course of Pete Carroll and John Schneider's time in Seattle, and... It's hard to argue with the results. Bringing the city's first Super Bowl title, getting back to another Super Bowl the very next season and coming within a yard of winning that game, uh, and then division title after division title, playoff berth after playoff berth. It's hard to think that the Seahawks have underachieved in this run of success that they've had over the last decade. But it does kind of feel like they've left points out on the field to use a, a football metaphor here in this run. And, and maybe they have fallen short of, of becoming sort of a Patriots light or becoming, I guess maybe the Kansas city chiefs of, of recent years where, you know, they're kind of that juggernaut team and, you know, they've got the quarterback to win. They've got, you know, other pieces that are, are capable of winning a championship, but, for whatever reason, it just seems as though they have not been able to, I guess, get back to what it was in 2013 that made this team so special. Yeah, look, <clears throat> for me, it's all about perspective. And as a, as a current Kansas City Chiefs and Seahawks fan, growing up, the perspective of these teams and the lack of success and just the mundane nature of these organizations and how they were just the middle of the road at all times. They were never good. They were never really bad. Well, the chiefs got really bad, but that's a whole nother thing, but they were never like really, really bad. Like the worst team in the league. And then Russell Wilson arrives with Pete Carroll, you know, a couple right before that. And thus ushers in this new era of winning and, I think if you look at every NFL team individually, you could point to underachievements in every single organization. Even New England. Look, Brady just went to Tampa Bay and won with the same scrubs that he had in New England. Like, 
you got to raise a, an eyebrow and say, well, what happened there? Did they underachieve at the end of the last Brady, you know, year? Patrick Mahomes is in the same spot as Russell Wilson was when they went to back-to-back Super Bowls, won the first, lost the second. We've seen the memes. We know the history there. But to me, the, the Chiefs still have a lot of the things the Seahawks went through coming up. Some of those contracts are coming due. Some guys are going to want more money. Some guys are going to get paid. Some guys are going to get old. Like, there's just Travis Kelsey's in his 30s. You know what I mean? Like, how much more dominant can he be? How much longer can he stretch that out? And some of these organizations are going to come into some real tough times. And then you look at, like, the Packers. <laughs> Have they underachieved? They've they've been in almost a, in uh, an exact same boat as the the Seahawks. And you look elsewhere in the AFC, the Steelers. You know they got the the couple with ben, Big Ben, but they haven't really done anything. And he's making all this big money, and they have the Pouncey twins and one of the best offensive lines and young stars, and they didn't win either. So I mean, in a vacuum, you want to go through and pick apart. Every organization in the NFL, you can do it. So to me, I can't say the Seahawks underachieved. I think a lot of it also, and, and Brock Heward has made this point too over the course of the last you know month, or really when the Seahawks were eliminated from the playoffs, that guys like Tom Brady and, and to a much lesser extent Patrick Mahomes over the course of his first three seasons – have made winning in the playoffs look way easier than it actually is. Brady's postseason win percentage, I believe, is around 700, which is greater than, I think, his regular season win percentage. So he turns it up in the playoffs. Patrick Mahomes he has, what, two playoff losses in three seasons, and he's won multiple playoff games in each of those years. I mean, he is oh, just... Oh, those two losses were two? To, Tom Brady, exactly, to the best quarterback of all time. Um, So, you know, those guys have kind of been the outliers in all of this. But also, on the other hand, you look at the Seahawks, and I think it is fair for expectations to increase with the amount of success that you have. I think they're, you know, it is fair to look at where the Seahawks are and what they were prior to Pete Carroll and say, oh my gosh, this is the greatest run we have ever been on. But with the amount of you know, con- you know, the amount of years they've spent as a contender, I don't think it's enough anymore to be satisfied with simply making the playoffs, which I think was a lot of people's safe place prior to Pete Carroll and John Schneider, where it's like, oh, guys, we won the NFC West. Like, this is a great year. Like, this is awesome. Ten wins. Let's do it. But now the expectation is at least ten wins. It is at least a playoff appearance and multiple wins. And I I would say the conference championship round is something that the Seahawks should really, I think, make their goal. I know obviously Pete talks about, all the time their number one goal to start the season is to win the division because you're guaranteed a home game. Well, they did that this year. Didn't exactly help. The last time they won the division was in, I believe it was, what, 2016? They won one playoff game against the Detroit Lions and were bounced in the second round. So is winning the division simply enough these days? I don't think so. Also because now if you win your division – even if you're the number two seed, you don't get that first round bye, which as we've seen, you know, over the course of 
football's history, basically, or at least the Super Bowl's history, you need that first round buy. Yeah, and look, I, I think you nailed it, Curtis. Those are such valid points. But the thing I want to just bring up is there's a big difference between a 12 and 4 team that tinkers and a 12 and 4 team that overhauls. And all this neat team needs to keep doing is tinkering. Have they gotten it wrong? Of course, they've gotten it wrong in the draft sometimes. They've gotten it wrong on some free agents. Of course, they haven't hit on every single move. But no overhauls other than the one with the defense, which I'd consider to be a success right now. If you look at the where the defense ended the season, I would say they found their rhythm and they figured out who they were post-LOB era. So to me, yes, all of the things you just brought up are so valid. But I'll take the wise words of the Graz here. You can't get sick of winning. You can't get sick of winning. And yes, it's not enough to just do this, but you got to start there. Winning 12 gets you to the division title. It gets you to a home playoff game. It gets you those things. And, And when you get into the game... Anything can happen. You can lose that game. Playoff teams are all good, but you got to stay there. You got to be winning games to be in the playoffs. You got to be winning games to win the division. And being sick of winning will only come back to bite you. I think that happened at UW. I I think it happened on Montlake, and a lot of people got sick of winning with Chris Peterson and the way he was winning and losing some of the big games. They got sick of it, and here we are where now they're making coach hires and they're questioning the future of the team because they got sick of winning because it didn't end the way they wanted it to end. So, look, these are great discussions. I don't have all the answers. We're going to text in 710-710. This is a discussion with fans, and it's going to happen throughout the season. But let us know. Has this team, in your opinion, underachieved with Pete Carroll and Russell Wilson? Yeah, Taylor, I love that you brought up Graz. And, and one of the, the sayings that I most closely attribute to him is, is you never want to tire of winning. He wrote it. Excellent column this week on 710sports.com that I've kind of gone back to multiple times throughout the week, just kind of how he sees this Seahawks tenure going right now and how it kind of compares to other runs of success uh, that he's seen that, you know, just kind of peter out near the very end because of, you know, instances of guys wanting more say and and all of this. Uh, Check it out on 710sports.com if you haven't. It is just very, very, you know, thought-provoking stuff from Graz. Uh, always love what he has to say about stuff like that. But coming up in the next hour, we got a big three of some national stuff going on, including some big moves with the Houston Texans. But before we get into that, is Seattle's way of roster building sustainable? Can they continue to build out the roster the way they have over the course of John Schneider and Pete Carroll if they want to get back to where they want to go? That's coming up next here on Seattle Sports Saturday. Seattle Sports Saturdays with Curtis Rogers and Taylor Jacobs. On 710 ESPN Seattle. If you miss any of Seattle Sports Saturday, make sure you're checking out the podcast page, 710sports.com. We're there for you. So is every hour of every show that you might have missed during this week. And if, if you missed any hour of any show this week, you missed a lot because there was plenty going on on 710 ESPN in the past week. So make sure you're checking all of that out. 
He's Taylor Jacobs. I'm Curtis Rogers here on Seattle Sports Saturday. And, and Taylor, throughout the course of the week, we've taken a look at Russell Wilson's comments and how those impact the way Seattle could be building out their roster next year. And uh, a lot of people have pointed out the pro football focus rankings this week of teams spending on the offensive line. And ever since that 2013 year, when I believe the Seahawks had the highest paid O-line in the league, ever since then, it has been the exact opposite. They have been at 32, at least over the course of the last seven, eight years. And I would imagine there is a correlation between how much you're paying your and, and the performance that you're getting from, uh, you know, that number pretty much reflected in the amount of sacks that Russell Wilson has taken. So I wonder, Taylor, is the way Seattle chooses to build their roster, and it's not just the offensive line, how about on the defensive side of the ball or any that they made late in training camp or acquire expiring contract using draft capital to get those guys is the way Seattle about constructing their roster sustainable over the course of the next few years if they get back to people? Yeah, well, I, I think the offensive spending number is indicative about their, their place in the league. But also there is a little bit of a caveat there that drafted offensive linemen aren't going to make a ton of money. So if you can get that young controlled offensive line through the draft through pieces like Damian Lewis and you know Ethan Posick tended to work out in his career so far that if you can find pieces like that to fill in with a couple of the bigger pieces because look let's just face it Russell Wilson takes up a big chunk of that cap it's a large portion so you got to get creative in where you're spending, where you're not spending. And I think where they've, they're right on is trying to do that through the draft. Now, the only issue is they haven't hit. They haven't really hit in the draft other than a couple pieces. So is it a, is it a numbers game? Do they need to draft more offensive linemen to increase their chances of hitting? Is it a scouting thing? Have they been scouting in an improper way? We know in the past few years before this, it was a Tom Cable thing, right? He loved to take on the project, to move people around, to try this there. It didn't work. It, it, we took too long on that as an organization to, to pull away from Tom Cable and say, stop experimenting, be more straightforward and... Since the Seahawks have done that, you've seen some of the players really find their groove. So to me, the the first thing they got to address isn't the spending, it's the drafting. You got to draft better. You got to find the guys who are going to fit here and be able to contribute on a low salary for as long as possible to maximize Russell's um, window. What about you? Do you think they need to spend more? Do you think they need to draft better? Where would your focus be for this offensive line? I like what you said about drafting better because as we learned in the early part of Pete and John's tenure, when you can get all pro talent or just pro bowl talent for that matter on a rookie deal, kind of like what we have right now in DK Metcalf here in Seattle, that can free up so much other money for you to spend because of the rookie salary limits. And 
that was a big thing in the early part of, of of the tenure of Pete and John here is guys outperforming their contracts and allowing you to spend in other areas, allowing you to bring in guys like Michael Bennett and Cliff Averill as, as sort of luxury items that turned into, you know, very, very productive members of this team. Uh, I think hitting in the draft is, is incredibly important, especially on the offensive line. Um, I saw the stat, this last week, the Seahawks' average draft position of an offensive lineman was the fourth round, and it was around pick 131, which Ooh. I don't know about you, Taylor, but that's not the safest bet if you're looking for game-changing offensive linemen. And it hasn't helped either that the guys they have picked early in the draft, uh, Posick, James Carpenter, Jermaine Effetti, it hasn't helped that those guys haven't really developed the way that everybody kind of wanted them to, especially considering where they were picked at. And the only draft pick offensive lineman that they've had to get a second contract here is Justin Britt, who, I mean, early on it looked like he was going to be you know, a roster casualty at some point until he found a home at center. But even after he got that deal, it was kind of like, okay, he's getting paid a good amount, but is his performance reflective of that salary he's now making rather than his rookie contract? I think it's vital that in the draft find somebody that can play either left guard or center that second round pick. And who knows if they, if they're able to to get more picks early on in the draft, I would love it if they could get into that third round because I think there's a gap after that second round pick of like a hundred or so picks before they make another one. Not ideal, uh, especially with how few picks they've got right now and how many needs they have on the offensive side of the ball. Yeah. And that again, leads us back to these big questions. You know, are there pieces that are on the roster that will be dealt? Are there moves to be made in the future of this team to get more draft capital to try this or, you know, we are going to see what the Seahawks do because they know. They know how important the draft is. John Schneider, I think more than anyone listening, talking at this very moment, knows more about the draft and the process of what it takes to get offensive linemen, to get the, they don't just grow on trees. Dave Wyman talks about this. You can't just go to the offensive lineman tree, pick an offensive lineman off, take a bite, see if it's ripe or not, and come back. Like, that's not how it works. So, you're gonna, you gotta shoot the shot, and you're gonna make some, and you're gonna miss some. But the, if you're not shooting enough shots, it's going to hurt. So, look, they got some big, the big contracts to talk about, big decisions to make, and you know, it's it's a big loop. It's gonna go back, and then it goes to what are they gonna do with KJ or Bobby? It does do you have to make a deal to try and help Russell Wilson with offensive linemen? Do you have to take away from the defense to help that? You know, it's a big wheel, and it goes round and round and round. And uh, we're not trying to break the wheel like the Khaleesi. We're just trying to talk about it with you guys every Saturday for two hours. I, th- I think we're doing a good job of that. I think so. Uh, I think we are, Curtis. Taylor, when you look at another way the Seahawks have kind of pinned their hopes on over the last few years, it's through trades and in acquiring some good players through those trades like Jamal Adams and Jadevian Clowney and Dwayne Brown and uh, you know Jimmy Graham and all these guys over the years. Uh, Sheldon Richardson, another one. While it's great in the moment to get those guys, 
only Dwayne Brown has signed a second contract with the Seahawks out of those moves, out of those flashy moves, and they've given up a lot of draft capital over the years to acquire that those handful of players. Do you think that's something that the Seahawks should reevaluate in how they go forward, maybe pinning more value on those early-round draft picks? I would, personally, but also, if you look at what these moves were made to do, they were, other than Dwayne Brown, I think that was made to be a future. He was brought in to be the, the staple core of the line, but they felt like sort of stopgap trades, and I think you're totally right that the mentality of some of these trades were to get these, they were a couple pieces away, right? They just needed X and Y, and then they were there. They just needed a Jimmy Graham or, you know, something there to get them. And I, th- I think the team is not that close. They are still competitive, still a 12-win team, but I think they need a few more pieces than that. And I think that's usually when you see the Seahawks shift to the draft focus and, Look, maybe with a successful draft in the middle of the season, you can make one of those trades because we know the Percy Harvin trade did help. He did show up big. He did punch some people in the face on the way, but he did show up in the big moments to put that Super Bowl out of reach. So can they bring in someone to help with in that regard? I think they can, but like we've been talking about, the draft has to be the focus you gotta hit in the draft and you gotta hit early on some of those offensive linemen yeah we're just about two months away two and a half months away from the draft it's going to be a very interesting lead up to it especially with russell wilson's comments this week uh plenty of reaction to all of that over the next few months but coming up next year on seattle sports saturday we'll get you a big three to start off the noon hour as well as look at some nfl headlines throughout the league and then who's blinking first in this russell wilson pete carroll or John Schneider, all coming your way in the noon hour here on Seattle Sports Saturday.